We are delighted to be joined by the best Twitter follow in the world. Hello and welcome, Dustin Benj. Thank you so much. It's such a delight to be with you this afternoon. Oh, thank you, Dustin. Dustin, before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so actually growing up uh, in the state of Kentucky on the other side of the Atlantic from where you are currently located, um, I simply tell everyone that my hometown is London. And then I let them look at me with a puzzled look on their face like, yeah. surely you're not talking about London, England. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, I, I'm actually from London, Kentucky. Yeah. So I grew up in London, Kentucky, and uh, was born and raised in a country on a farm. Um, entered gospel preaching ministry at quite an early age. Uh, did a Master of Divinity and a PhD degree at the Southern Baptist. Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where my wife and I currently reside. Ah, brilliant. So are you from the land where Kentucky Fried Chicken was invented? Yes, actually the very first Kentucky Fried Chicken is about 10 miles from where I grew up. Been in the very first Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) So Dustin, when did you first become a Christian? Well, it's it's an interesting story. I often say that I attended Sunday school in my home church even before I was born. Um, And that's not really an exaggeration to say that my family um, was part of a church, part of a local congregation in eastern Kentucky all of my life. Um, We can trace our roots back in this church several generations. In fact, I remember while I was growing up, I remember seeing my great-grandfather in the church, my uh, great-aunts, my grandparents, my mom and dad, of course, and many, many others of my family who were intimately involved in the ministry of the church there. So really being raised by godly parents in the ministry of the church, I always felt a part of God's family. Uh, In other words, there really has never been a time in my remembrance that I was not regularly attending church and involved in the work and service of the church itself. However, um, it was not until the age of about 12 uh, that I came to realize um, after a series of uh, meetings that our church was involved in, I came home one evening and I was under very heavy conviction of sin Hmm. um, with the realization that I was under the wrath of God and in desperate need of a Savior. Hmm. And so I began to speak to my parents after arriving home from service, and after seeking the Lord in prayer, I repented of my sins and came into a personal relationship with Christ. Um, At that moment, I I can honestly say that Christ arrested my heart, justified my soul by his grace, and, of course, regenerated my life by his power. Uh, There was no doubt in rising from prayer uh, that I was a Christian and wanted to live all of my life uh, for his glory. Yeah, so good. When did you first feel the um, call for ministry? It was around the age of 14, actually, quite a very young age. I struggled 
with an inward longing uh, to teach and to preach God's Word for probably six months or so. Yeah. I kept coming up with every excuse that I could imagine, um, and God kept bringing me back to passages uh, of Paul talking to young Timothy yeah. or Jeremiah, who was called at such an early age. And so after all of those excuses were answered through Scripture, I basically walked forward um, and spoke to my pastor uh, at the time and told him I wanted to surrender my life uh, to gospel ministry. And so it was around the age of 14. Oh, wow. So what does that practically look like for a 14-year-old? What were the next steps for you, Dustin? Well, it was interesting. I, I think, if anything, it was just simply wanting the church to recognize that and yeah. therefore coming under their accountability. Yeah coming under their prayers, uh, requesting that they pray for me and support me and encourage me. But at 14 years old, it just meant that every youth event that was in the area, that that is what I was invited to speak to. Yeah. So because I was a person, they expected me to speak in front of young people. Yeah. And so God provided great opportunities for me to do that and really opened a lot of doors. Um, of course, it also meant setting my heart and mind upon a trajectory to prepare for gospel ministry. Yeah. And so I entered a um, Bible college um, in eastern Kentucky after I graduated high school. Uh, I did a four-year Bible degree, went straight from there into the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for a Master of Divinity degree, and then finally a PhD. And so most of my life has been involved in gospel preparation. Dustin, so many people listening will, will know you from your Twitter account. I've got to ask you, how do you come up with so much gold on Twitter? Yeah, Twitter, my goodness, it's an interesting beast. <laughs> um, I, I, I I had a Twitter account for several years, yeah. probably five, six years. I never really did anything with it. I yeah. think maybe I had amassed about 400 followers. Yeah. Um, and then about two years ago, I, I set about to begin posting regular doctrinal, biblical encouragement and edification. Yeah. Just from things that I was reading or thinking about or studying, things of that nature. And so as I began posting on a regular basis, the followers began to pick up. And mm. so in, in two years, it went from about 400 to now 28,000 and yeah. something yeah. Uh, in about two years. And so God has really opened that door of um, what I view as ministry, yeah. uh, a ministry of encouragement and edification. Um, I, I do have certain parameters that I try to stay in uh, when thinking about what to pose, yeah. uh, some questions that I ask myself. Uh, for instance, is this true? In other words, is it doctrinally sound? Is it based upon Scripture? Um, secondly, perhaps something like, is it edifying? Is it, is it something that's going to encourage a believer? Um, is it also exalting to Christ? I, I don't want to post anything uh, for which is going to not be glorifying to God and exalting Christ and his gospel. Mm. And so it's within those parameters 
that I strive to stay out of a lot of what I would call the social media mud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now other others have different strategies that I'm very thankful for, but that particular strategy has worked for me. Uh, I don't want to get worked up about it or be depressed when people say hurtful things. Yeah. I just simply want to be faithful in this medium the same way that I strive to be faithful in a pulpit uh, when preaching God's word. How far in advance do you plan? I have a vision every time that you post. I just visualize this factory that you've got with like 10 or 15 people on a typewriter just working at this, you know, working on this content for you, Dustin. <laughs> no, I, oh my goodness, I wish that was the way it was. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disappoint you in saying um, I rarely, if ever, plan a tweet. No way, um, really? Now, yeah, yeah it's, it's wild. If, if I'm, you know, out busy doing something and something will pop into my mind or... Yeah or some statement will pop into my mind as I'm, you know, driving down the road. I will jot that note down just to pick up on a late, later time. But most every single tweet that I do is extemporaneous. Wow. And um, it's just when you see me post it is the moment that I write it. It's the moment that I compose it. That's amazing. Um, yeah. It's just, uh, yeah. So, you know, I don't have these great schedules and so on. But I end up posting about the same time every day. Yeah. Um, so I try to post a couple times in the morning, once or twice in the afternoon, and then always one time uh, on the evenings. Yeah. You touched on it a few moments ago. Um, as somebody that's a, a bit of an expert on Twitter, you, you see a lot of arguments and conversations that develop, uh, in, you know, not always in a good way. What do you think are the hills to die on on Twitter? And not just on Twitter, in, in you know, from a theological point of view as well. Well... <sighs> I would simply very honestly say on social media, there are no hills to die on. Mm. And I know that that's quite stark um, and very honest and transparent. But though I want to encourage people, I have to constantly remind myself that I'm not their pastor. Yeah. And therefore, I am not spiritually responsible for what they believe or how they articulate that particular belief. Mm. The pulpit, the pulpit of the local church, not social media, is the battleground for hills to die on. Um, I rarely comment on others' posts, uh, though they may be in error. I see theological error all the time. Um, A good friend of mine and I will comment on theological error that we see in mass on social media but i rarely comment because i don't want to get into uh, some sort of debate on social media that debate is for another time and another place i've never have seen my job as one of trying to police everyone else's theology Mm. because if i can police my own then that's a full-time job for me yeah and so I just simply want to be faithful uh, to what God has given me to do uh, and realizing that I'm not everyone's pastor or elder. Um, I try, again, to encourage people. If if people come in or ask me a question, I'm very happy to engage them. But beyond a few comments, I'm just not going to chase 
you know, rabbit hole. That That's just not what I'm going to get into. Yeah. Now, of course, if I'm preaching the Word of God as a pastor, as an elder in a local church, there are many hills to die on. Uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, the, the sovereignty of God, mm. the righteousness of Christ, the centrality of the gospel, mm. uh, grace by faith alone, you know, those are the hills to die on, not some transient tweet that is going to be here today and gone tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, very wise, very wise. Dustin, are there any aspects of your own theology that you've shifted on over the years? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um I would I would have to say probably the most prominent would be that I have not always been reformed. Mm. Um, I've not always been a reformed theologian. I used to be, in my early college years, I was adamantly against reformed theology and the doctrines of grace. Yeah. I, I would not say that I was a full-fledged Arminian, uh, but if anything, I would say I was probably at least a semi-Pelagian, if yeah. you will, yeah. uh, which is probably the majority of many people in the pews of our churches. Mm. Um, when I was in college, a friend began speaking to me about the doctrines of grace, about you know total depravity and uh, election and the glory of God and. Uh, by faith alone, through grace alone, th those doctrinal elements of the period of the Reformation. Yeah. Uh, this friend gave me a copy of a John MacArthur study Bible. Mm. And I, at that time, had not heard a whole lot about John MacArthur. So I began listening to a few of his sermons, and I began reading his notes as I was reading through the book of Romans. So I started out a semi-Pelagian in Romans 1, and by the time I finished Romans, I was fully Reformed. Um, <laughs> wow. I embraced Reformed theology yeah. and never looked back. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't MacArthur that convinced me, but it was the Apostle Paul, mm. through Christ speaking through his word, that convinced me that these doctrines were scriptural, uh, they were biblical, they were sound, they were faith once delivered to all the saints, and this was something that need, needed further investigation. Yeah. And so I think I posted on Twitter just a little bit ago, prior to believing the doctrines of grace, I asked the question, why? Mm -hmm. But after believing the doctrines of grace, I cried out, why me? And so Hearing to the doctrines of grace mm. desperately brought me into an area of sanctification, of learning humility. It was as if I was learning theology all over again as I saw it through this sovereign, gracious, majestic lens. Mm. And this, after all, is what sanctification is all about. Now, of course, there are other small things small parts of my theology that I would just simply say have been further clarified or further identified, but this particular area of Reformed theology was the major shift that I took as a theological student. Yeah. Another great follow on Twitter, and I know you're good friends with him, is Nate Pickowitz. How did you guys first meet? 
Yeah, that's a, a, a lovely story of God's providence. Um, I was actually candidating in a church for pastor um, in Vermont uh, several years ago. And, um, you know, God did not open that door. But nevertheless, I was up there visiting my wife and I. Yeah. And I began to know Nate a little bit on Twitter. This is when I first began to kind of pick up the the Twitter following, if you will. And as I began to be acquainted with Nate, I found out that he was a pastor in New Hampshire, not too far from where my wife and I were staying in Hanover, New Hampshire. Well, of course, not knowing anyone up in the area, I contacted him and and we arranged to meet on the campus of Dartmouth College and have coffee at the local Starbucks. Yeah. And so we gathered there. That was the first conversation that we began to have. And then as the past several years has gone by, Nate and I have grown to be very, very dear friends in Christ. Yeah. You actually, well, you finished it now, haven't you? You've written a book together. Um, what's that book about? It's called The American Puritans. Yeah. Uh, It's published by Reformation Heritage Books. It's going to release in May, I think, of this year. And really, the American Puritans came out of our mutual love, that is mine and Nate's mutual love, not only for church history, but for a group of 17th century faithful and godly men and women that sailed from England to the New World to establish towns, churches, and missions during the 17th century. Um, Some traveled on the Mayflower, some traveled on ships in subsequent years. Uh, But this book, we wanted to gather together really nine biographies of men and women that people have basically forgotten about. All American evangelicalism, Christianity really on the American shores can be traced back to the faithful witness and testimony of most of these men and women Puritans that came from England. So what we do is we gather together nine biographical accounts that will acquaint you, will inform you of these faithful and godly people. Uh, William Bradford, John Winthrop, John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Shepard, Anne Bradstreet, John Elliott, Samuel Willard, and Cotton Mather. Um, It was, just to be honest, a wonderfully fun project and really an eye-opening project as we began to study the lives of several who have been, been forgotten through the centuries but have had enormous impacts on the future of Christianity in America. Yeah. Nate sent me a message and told me to ask you about John Elliott. (laughs) Well, Nate, um, Nate having camped out, if you will, in this particular century uh, for a very long time, he was acquainted with some of these figures, perhaps a little better than I was. (laughs) Um, I did my doctoral work in Jonathan Edwards, and so I was... Um, I was several years later than some of these men and women. Uh, So he began to say, you know what, I'll take this group of people and you take 
these people. Yeah. And so I was basically assigned or given uh, Thomas Hooker, John Winthrop, John Elliott, and Anne Bradstreet. Yeah. And I had not known John Elliott prior to writing about him for this particular project. Yeah. But he became one of my favorite figures of this period. And just if I can, just a very brief biographical account of Elliot. John Elliot was born in England around 1604. He died in 1690. Uh, he was an assistant to Thomas Hooker in Essex before Hooker was forced to flee to Holland during a very severe Protestant Puritan persecution. Um, Elliot, at the time, immigrated to Boston, Massachusetts, and became the pastor of what is known as the First Church in Roxbury, Massachusetts, where he would remain as pastor for 40 years. Now, among other things, among many pastoral labors and involvement in the local government, and the setting up and establishment of that government, Elliot established a central missionary focus, focus on the Algonquin Indians and eventually created for them an alphabet and a Bible translation in the Algonquin language published in 1663. It was the very first copy of God's Word to be published in America. Wow. And so I have began to affectionately call him America's William Tyndale. Yeah. Because he believed that the only way to reach the Native Americans with the gospel of Christ was to give them a Bible in their own language. And so he set about on this monumental endeavor to create uh, Native American grammar books, Native American alphabets, Native American pronunciation guides, and therefore translated both Old and New Testament uh, during his lifetime. Wow. And then up until King Philip's War in 1675, Elliot also established several Native American missionary outposts in villages called Praying Indian Towns. Um, so really in short, Elliot was an enormous figure yeah. and one that I think we should all be acquainted with. And even after years of ministry, he identified himself on his deathbed as a mere, quote, shrub in the wilderness, yeah. end quote. And so there's something about his prodigious labors, his desire to see the gospel spread about in the new world, and his desire uh, to pastor people that really resonated with in my own heart. Bearing Nate in mind, what does a good Christian friend look like? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's one through the years that um, I've had the privilege of, of having several friends that would uh, really kind of fit into this category. Mm. Um, I really love, and, and when I think about friendship, what comes to my mind is something that C.S. Lewis said. Mm. He said, what draws people to be friends 
is that they see the same truth and they share it. And I really love that definition of friendship. I really think that's the essence of friendship, isn't it? Mm. It's a commonality in the truth of Christ, Mm. united and bound by that truth with a mutual desire to spread that truth. Mm. I really think Christian friendship also involves a mutual affection toward the Word of God. I've never had a close friend with which we did not agree on the beauty and loveliness of Scripture as God's revelation to us. It's it's in Scripture that we are united together. It's in Christ that we are united together. That is our unification, if you will. Mm And then, of course, friendship involves all the characteristics, doesn't it, of trust and honesty, love, support, respect, encouragement, mercy, forgiveness, kindness. Um, Friendship is a true gift of God and not one that should ever be taken lightly. And so those are just some of the things that I think true Christian friendship should resemble. Um, It should resemble a mutual glorification of God and exaltation of Christ in all that you do together. Yeah, so good. So good. Dustin, we're recording this at the beginning of April um, 2020 and we're in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak. What are the opportunities for Christians right now? Well, my my goodness, we we have found ourselves in a very different world Mm. than, say, Uh, just several weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's amazing how things have shifted. Um, I'm not sure that anyone alive at the moment, except perhaps that great generation of World War II, can remember a time quite like this. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Economic situation is uncertain. Uh, Unemployment is uncertain. It's just wreaked havoc on our normal day-to-day activities that we uh, so often take for granted. But it has also, at the same time, presented enormous opportunities uh, for Christians. Mm -hmm. Number one, I think it's an opportunity to pray. Uh, It's an opportunity to get back to the recognition that our dependence is fully and completely on God and God alone. Yeah. Um, Another opportunity is to be an example by staying at home, uh, not contributing to the possibility of others uh, getting sick. Mm. Uh, It's an opportunity to serve in unique and creative ways. I have so many pastor friends and uh, friends that are in leadership of theological institutions and all of the rest that, that have creatively found ways that they can serve and volunteer and um, uh, do gospel outreach during this time. Mm. And so I'm very thankful for those opportunities. Uh, Sometimes we feel that I think during this time that, well, we're being so ineffective because we, we can't go out of our homes and we can't, you know, do all the things that we used to do. But I think perhaps maybe, maybe God would be saying to us out of the multitude of things he may be saying 
maybe he's saying that it's a time for families to reconnect and yeah. reestablish their relationships that, uh, that perhaps we had many, many years ago. Um, relationships that were personal and private and uh, beautiful, godly relationships. And perhaps he's saying things like that. And so I'm not sure what the outcome is going to be after coronavirus leaves. And I do believe that it will leave. I pray that it leaves uh, sooner than later. Um, but no doubt we are going to live in a very different world and Christians need to be ready uh, to stand up and face that world knowing that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah, so good. Dustin, if you was teaching on Sunday, what would the week beforehand look like for sermon prep? Well, it would involve a very intensive study um, in a text of Scripture. Um, I love expository preaching. I adhere to a school of thought that believes sequential expository preaching is perhaps uh, one of the best ways by which God grows his people uh, under the preaching of God's word. So diving into the text and mining out of the text, as it were, exactly what God says in the text. And then watching the Holy Spirit take that context and transform and mold us into conformity of Christ. And so it takes by selecting a passage. If you are sequentially preaching through a book, that's um, very easy for you because you go on to the very next set of verses and you approach a text with a full repertoire, as it were, of study and understanding of a particular book and its context and its background and its original languages. And so I'm, I'm seeking one thing, and that one thing is not, not what does the text say to me, but what I'm seeking to find in my study is what does the text say? say. It doesn't matter what the text says to me. That comes later. Mm -hmm. What does the text say is my primary responsibility in my study. And so I have around me, I have certain commentaries. I have certain language helps as I'm digging into the Greek for the New Testament and the Hebrew for the Old Testament. I'm looking at cross-references and trying to get into the mind of the author of that particular book. I'm in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate my mind. I'm amassing uh, a large folder of notes all through the week. I start this on Monday morning. I do it Tuesday. I do it Wednesday. I do it Thursday. And then it's on Friday that I begin to amass these notes and to begin writing out some sort of a outline or a sermon manuscript, if you will, yeah. that will be revised over the next couple of days. Um, and then finally, um, I walk into the pulpit with a full manuscript of notes um, from my study that particular week. And so that's just a, a helicopter view, if you will, of uh, my study on a particular passage yeah so good thank you dustin last question if there was someone listening to you right now and they wanted to know how they can follow jesus what would you say to them well there's no more important question is there um 
the gospel is the good news. Uh, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose again. He eternally triumphed over his enemies so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe in Christ, but only everlasting joy. That, in essence, is the gospel. Uh, And if you want to follow Christ, you must turn to Christ as your Savior and Lord, uh, for he is your only hope of salvation. Paul said in Romans 10, 13, for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Today is the appointed time unto salvation. Receive him by faith. Believe on him by faith and come into a saving knowledge with the Lord Jesus Christ and enter into uh, an everlasting joy that will never, ever end. What a beautiful portrait of good news. Yeah, amazing. Dustin, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed speaking to you today. Well, thank you so much. I just want to say that I'm looking very forward. I've recently been appointed as provost of Union School of Theology in Wales. Uh, That announcement was made several weeks ago, and my wife and I will be moving to the UK uh, here in just a few weeks, if the Lord will allow. And so we're looking very forward to being on that side of the Atlantic and perhaps meeting many of your listeners and perhaps even doing interviews like this on a regular basis. Thank you so much for having me on.